Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Wendy, you know when I had a great time? When did you have a great time? I had a great time at our Patreon hangout <laughs> on Wednesday. Oh, I did too. That was so fun. So last Wednesday, uh, we talked about paranormal stuff. We shared stories, shared pictures and things like that uh, from our paranormal adventures with the Sunspot and See You on the Other Side Patreon community. Yes. And I'm looking forward to the next one, which is coming up right quick. Absolutely. It's coming up <laughs> right quick. May 9th. Yeah, May 9th. So Patreon community members, please mark your calendars. We'd love to have you there. It'll be at 7.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. Central Time on May the 9th, which is a Wednesday. Yes. So we want to see you on Wednesday night. uh, And that's just in uh, next week. So from when you you listen to the podcast, that's just next week. So we look forward to seeing you guys then. And if you aren't a Patreon member but would like to join us... You can just uh, sign up at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And that's where you can be part of the coolest people in the universe. <laughs> right. And speaking of, <laughs> speaking of the universe, the secret power of the universe is the subtitle of our guest today's book. And talking to Dean Radin really is a special treat. And we've been trying to get him on the show. He's turned me down a couple times. Oh, Mike, you got this. Well, he was just doing (laughs) in his last book, Supernormal. He had a, he had a ton of of press like coast to coast and he's on a TV. Oh, he was busy. Yes. And so he's like, that's cool. That's great. So we early, we heard that he had this new book coming out, real magic. We wanted to uh, get him like immediately. We got him early on the press for, because it just came out this month. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Nice work. Yes. And so uh, Allison uh, was like sneakily bugging him to get him on the show. And then he, <laughs> he agreed to it. And th- the reason why I respect Eden Rain so much is because he's got the job that I want. Uh-huh. He's a, he's a parapsychology researcher. He researches psychic phenomenon. Cool. And he worked for Dr. Edgar Mitchell at the Institute wow. of Noetic Sciences. So we talk all about this in the, in the interview. So... I just I wanted to share with you how excited I was to have him on the show because I've been reading his work uh, for over a decade. That's awesome. So, um, well, let's bring him on. Yeah. Dean Radin, PhD, is chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and associated distinguished professor of integral and transpersonal psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He earned an MS in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, Midwestern guy, all right, Dean. Before joining the research staff at IONS in 2001, he had held appointments at AT AT&T Bell Labs. Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. He is author or co-author of hundreds of technical and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, and four popular books, The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and the one we'll be talking about today, Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. Dean, thank you so much for joining Allison and I today and talking with the good people of See You on the Other Side. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So let's start with your origin story. I think um, 
so everybody gets we we just had the the professional background that's basically your CV in thirty seconds. But what you know, besides your uh, professional background, where are you from originally, and what inspired you to research the weird? I was born in New York City, in in the Bronx, near the Bronx mm. Zoo. My parents tell me that uh, when I was growing up, we were close enough to the zoo to be able to hear the lions oh, roar neat. at night. Ooh. So mid- middle of the city and the middle of the jungle at the same time. When I was uh, very young, we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and I, I stayed there until I was six. And then we moved to Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, where I had most of my formative years. And then I've, uh, when I started working or after college, I've lived in many places around the world. So uh, I've been more or less settled now in California for the last 18 years, and uh, I like it here. All right, that sounds good. Uh, what inspired you originally to seek out and, and research this? I mean, this isn't this is a very you know to some people controversial area of science, and so I think it takes some cojones to to want to research that. And and what inspired you to do that? Well, first of all, everyone is interested in psychic phenomena because uh, our surveys show that the majority of the population around the world either believes or has had experiences of these, these kinds of effects. So not surprisingly, a lot of people are interested in it. And we see that reflected in the entertainment world because it's a billion dollar business. If you look at how many movies have uh, paranormal themes or themes having to do with uh, magical power and that sort of thing, it's like every other movie, every other TV show. So the interest is there and Hollywood knows that. What also turns out to be interesting is that from a scholarship perspective, Many academics are fascinated by these topics as well. In the academic world, you're not allowed to talk about psychic phenomena as though they're real, but you are allowed to talk about it. So typically, it's expressed in terms of history and what people believe and that sort of thing. And uh, within uh, scholarship and looking at religion, for example, there's a huge number of scholars who uh, write professional journal articles I publish them in peer-reviewed journals on the relationship between things like magic and development of science and magic and the way it's been used by religions and on and on and on. It's a massive area of, of interest. So the only thing that I've done that's a little bit different is that uh, I decided that the taboo that prevents academics from talking about this is just stupid. A lot of taboos are stupid. They're social control features. And I decided I, d- I didn't want to play that game. So when I've given talks to technical audiences, sometimes I, I uh, will ask them, if, you, if there was funding to do this kind of research and it, you wouldn't put your career at risk, how many of you would want to do the research in this area? It's always 100%. Everyone's interested in it. Of course, they want to do something, but they can't. Your role, uh, would would it be proper to call you a parapsychologist? Uh, only in polite society. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, so, so you are a parapsychologist. Um, and, you know, as we said, you're the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, IONS. And uh, that was started by Edgar Mitchell, right? I mean, uh, we we did a a necrologue on him uh, when he passed. Uh, so you know, we've been you know following following uh, 
his contributions as well for for quite a while. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about you know which people and experiences influenced you the most when you were uh, considering parapsychology? I think the first book that I read that was about the science of studying psychic phenomena was by a guy named Mark Hansel, who was a very strong skeptic of of the paranormal, and it was a book that he wrote called see if I can remember, ESP, A Scientific Investigation. I think that was the title. So Hansel was uh, cut in the mold of people who have always been around, who have been very, very skeptical about these kinds of effects, and then write about it and saying why we shouldn't believe anything that we hear about it. So that, that part of it, I, I felt that he was going a little bit overboard in the book, like trying to explain everything away. But what caught my eye and this was when I was about 11 or 12 years old, was that you could do experiments to test these things. You don't simply have to take anecdotes at face value, but you can do experiments in the laboratory and figure out whether these are a real thing or not. So after reading that book, I started reading other books, which were from the perspective of people actually doing the experiments rather than just criticizing them. And I got pulled into it because Prior to that, I've been reading mostly about science fiction and fairy tales, which are fun, but you, you never get a sense, you know, you, you get a sense that this is just fantasy. You don't get any sense of how would I actually know if any of the stuff were real. Well, in the science side, now you have a way of figuring it out. So that's what caught my attention. And so that kind of goes into the next question, which is, you know, what is your definition of science? You were just touching... Uh, there on, you know, that first book you read on parapsychology, you know, and it sounds like there might have been some scientism going on there with that author rather than, you know, actually using scientific evidence. Can you speak to that? And, and what is science in, in your view? Well, it's two major components. One side is empiricism, which is a set of tools and techniques to study the nature of, of reality. So that is independent of the nature of the topic. The, the other side, though, of science is the scientific worldview, which is a set of theories and principles and observations that science has essentially created, which tells us this is the nature of reality. So by its very nature, that scientific worldview is always in, a, in a, an evolutionary um, stance because it is changing. Unlike religion that doesn't change very much, science has to change because we develop new instruments, new methods, and so on. What can happen though is that some scientists will go through a 20-year academic career and pretty much buy into it to such an extent that they can't see outside of that worldview. And every worldview has blinders on it. You can't, it, you can't accommodate everything in your worldview. So science has created a very specific way of viewing the nature of reality. And for people who have forgotten that that is essentially a narrative, it's a story, it's a pretty good story, it's predictive, but it's still a story. If they can't see out, outside of that box, then anything that, that challenges that scientific worldview will be seen as pseudoscience. That's unfortunate because, it, among other things, it excludes our own experience, and that's what science is not very good at explaining it. And and yeah, we've talked a lot about that on the program about you know how can we exclude people's experiences? You know, over millennia, you know, this is uh, 
their, their dealings with the paranormal are part of what makes us human. And so we can't just shut off that part of ourselves. But you know, dealing with the scientific worldview, now I'm, you know, you're, you're activating my prior knowledge here. And I'm thinking about, you know, that part of the book where you talked about uh, reductionism, mechanism, uh, I forget the rest. Um, but, you know, as aspects of the of the scientific worldview. Can you speak to that, those, those uh, components? Well, other, other parts of it are materialism there you go. and physicalism <laughs> Thank you. and positivism. So there's a whole bunch of isms that, <laughs> that are pr principles and doctrines that go into the development of the scientific worldview. Probably the most important is materialism. Materialism is essentially saying that everything is made out of matter and energy, including mind and consciousness. So like literally everything has to be thought of in terms of matter and energy. The flip side of that, of course, is that that is an assumption. It's a pretty good assumption because it allowed us to create all kinds of interesting technologies and the science that we have is perfectly fine. But the question is, is that comprehensive enough to account for everything? The answer is almost certainly no. It, it cannot account for everything. For people who, as we were saying before, for people who are kind of inside the scientific worldview and that's all they ever think about, then it becomes scientism because then they, they take as a matter of faith that that's all there is. So nothing else can exist. If you think outside the box, even just a little bit, you immediately counter the paranormal, which is a very unfortunate term because it, it automatically is forcing uh, a distinction between normal and something that is not normal. So normal is like within the scientific worldview, anything outside of that is automatically paranormal, which means it's not part of the scientific enterprise. So th this has been a persistent problem for parapsychology, which is why I'm trying to get rid of the word para as well, because that also forces it out on the fringe. The reason why I'm, I'm writing books is basically to say, no, this is just science, everyday science, it challenges the scientific worldview, but we also have a way of expanding it. We expand the scientific worldview as we've done throughout history. Suddenly, spooky things like psychic phenomena aren't so spooky anymore. They become accommodated by our, our wider view. Well, that view is going to keep getting wider and wider as we learn more and more about the nature of reality. And we'll probably end up with new kinds of paranormal stuff, which is even weirder than the things we know today. Well, I'm excited to get to the weirder paranormal stuff as soon as possible. I'll tell you, because I, <laughs> you know, but but you know, one thing I kind of want to get at here, Dean, is that when we talk about personal experience, um, I mean, anecdotal evidence isn't enough for a lot of people. It's just like, okay, all right, so you had something weird happen to you. Let's one of the big things about science is replication, and so when we What's the kind of research that you're doing or that you've been influenced by or seen that you think is that, that best kind of evidence that starts opening up the worldview? Because it's hard to replicate a personal experience, but what can you replicate out there? Right. So that brings us into the laboratory. Because in the laboratory, you, have the, you can define what the conditions are under which you're seeing something. So you are creating the same kind of, ex of experience that people talk about in the everyday world, but under conditions where you can see it repeatedly and in lots of people. That gives us confidence that what we're looking at is real. So I'll just give one example with something like telepathy. So people report that they feel connected to others and they somehow know what's going on to, with people at a distance. 
from an anecdotal perspective, uh, it, it's relatively easy to say, well, it could be coincidence. Like you, you, you just both went to the ocean and then you went home and you both had dreams about the ocean. Not too surprising, but that's not telepathy. And so there's a, a, a long list of mundane explanations as to why people would end up with the same kind of mental thing happening in their head. But nevertheless, sometimes you get people who uh, haven't thought about somebody in 20 years and then they call you the next day. Well, is that a coincidence or not? A statistician would say, well, there's seven and a half billion people on earth having trillions of experiences. Some of them are going to look pretty strange, but it's still coincidence. So when we go into the laboratory, we can say, okay, we're going to create a context here where we can exclude all of the mundane methods. So we'll, we'll select two people. We'll assign one to be a, a sender, one to be a receiver of information. Uh, we'll isolate them so there's no way they can communicate. And then we'll prepare in advance a, a series of photographic targets that are put in pools of four possible pictures. And the pictures are as different from each other as you can get. And then we'll create lots of different pools. So we have this, this large population of possible targets that we want the sender to send. Now we select a pool at random, and we select one of the four pictures in that pool at random. And we give it to the sender and say, okay, mentally send this to the receiver. The receiver's job then, after 20 minutes of this mental sending thing, is they basically are shown four pictures, and they have to choose the one that they thought the sender was sending. So because it's all chosen randomly, and the sender and receiver have no idea in advance what the pictures are going to be, on, a ba on the basis of one trial, where the, the receiver has to say, I think it's this picture, this one out of four, that tells us something, but not very much. It gives us one data point. It's either a hit or a miss. So by chance now, you know exactly what the chance level is. It's, it's one in four. We'll get it right. So if you do that kind of experiment thousands of times, which has been done under conditions where you know for certain that there's no way they can communicate in any ordinary fashion, from the, the null hypothesis would say, if there's no telepathy, the best you can do is 25%, plus or minus statistical error on each side. So that experiment has been done over 4,000 such sessions, uh, usually with unselected people, mostly college sophomores who just happen to be around because they want credit for their psychology course. But sometimes also people who claim that they feel telepathic or family members and so on. And what you get is 32%. So when you have uh, 4,000 4, trials like this and you're getting up with 32% rather than 25%, the odds against chance are, to use a technical term, a gazillion to one. <laughs> it's, th this is not a chance outcome. Right. And these were just people who were pretty much selected off the street, not the heavy hitters. Right. So when you partition the data from the college sophomores just doing it for fun, as compared to family members who have reported these kinds of experiences in their own life, you get about twice the effect size. So people who report telepathy do much better than strangers, but even strangers will still get beyond chance. And that suggests to us that we're, we're dealing with something which is probably related to sentience. It may not even be a human thing. It's about the nature of sentience is that it can connect mentally to other sentient creatures. And some people have a talent for it.
Now, what's the flip side of that? I mean, right there, I mean, th- that was the experiment that I did. That exact experiment you described was the experiment I did for my experimental psychology course, hmm. you know, 20 years ago when I was in college. And, hmm. you know, when, when you ran the numbers and everything afterwards, you're like, statistically, we beat chance. So we proved psychic powers. Good night, everybody. Have a good one. But the thing is, you know, what's the flip side of that? So when you said over 4,000 experiments have been done on this and over countless years we've been hearing about uh, that psi research has been replicated. You know, what when people come from the other side and say, like, there's nothing to this, how, what do they, what kind of argument do they use against that when they say, like, okay, well, the same statistics we use to prove this can also be used to prove this? What's the flip? Well, in, when I hear someone say, uh, there's no evidence for, for this or no repeatable evidence, I say, well, wh- what, what are you talking about? Like, what specifically are you referring to that is telling us that there's no evidence? They have no response because they don't know what they're talking about. So I'm much more interested in, in people who are giving a specific criticism. Like in this experiment, could it have been this, this flaw or something? Because then if, it's, if they're right, and sometimes they are right, you, you take that and you say, okay, that may be a loophole. We'll close the loophole, and now we'll do the experiment again. And this has been going on for four decades. So when we do the, the classic telepathy experiment today, it has closed every loophole that anyone has ever raised. And we still get 32%. So I think it's, it's very, it gives us more and more confidence as we do the same kind of experiment again and again in different labs with different people and keep getting the same result, including, by the way, by skeptics who explicitly said they don't believe in this stuff. They, they get 32% as well. So does telepathy exist? Probably. We see something like that in the laboratory. There are actually several other classes of experiments that are looking at telepathy in different ways, like brain-to-brain correlations, that sort of thing. Uh, And then you can say, well, the preponderance of the evidence from multiple different angles all say that there's something about awareness that is connected to other people's awareness. That's what the evidence says. If somebody says, no, I don't believe it, well, read the literature. Do the experiment. In your book, so you you define magic as well, and and telepathy is one of the aspects that you talk about. What are the other aspects of magic uh, that fall within your definition that have been studied within the lab? Well, magic is, uh, if if you look through all of the esoteric traditions and you try to synthesize what we mean by magic, uh, the way I, I set it out is in three categories. One category is divination. So divination, from a science perspective, we can say it's clairvoyance or precognition. It's perceiving. Predicting the, predicting the future. Well, not only the future, but also seeing at a distance. You know, you think about a movie like Lord and the Rings, uh, there's the, uh, the, the evil man who is able to see at a distance. It's a divination technique. So it's perceiving through space and time. That's the idea of okay. it. The one that, that most people think of as magic is manifestation. I, I think I like to use the term force of will because it's all about uh, the expression of your intention to manipulate the world in some way. That's usually how magic is talked about, but that's only one of the three practices. And then the third practice is theurgy, which is communicating with or uh, conjuring up spirits to do things on your behalf. So that's essentially the nature of magic. All the way from shamanism to the present day, while it has ex- been expressed in lots of different forms, those are the three categories. 
So those three categories have been studied by parapsychology as clairvoyance, precognition, um, psychokinesis, and various kinds of survival phenomena like near-death experience and mediumship. So the, the point of my book is that you look at classical ideas about magic, it turns out that we have been studying them, meaning me and my colleagues for 150 years. We've been looking at these phenomena in the laboratory. We typically call them psychic, but it's the same phenomena that has been talked about as magic throughout history. Well, we just covered radar love, you know, like the telepathy kind of thing as part of magic. We talk about the other aspects too. I'm interested in the kind of experiments that you guys did to, um, you know, if we just take another example, let's say Conjuring Up the Dead, like you talked about that last one. What was the name of that again? Theurgy? Theurgy, yeah. Okay, theurgy. Okay. So that particular one, what kind of experiments could you do in the lab to try to conjure up kind of stuff? Like, how, how is that setting? What's the context? And I want to go to that lab today. <laughs> well, theurgy is not exactly conjuring up the dead, although I, I guess I can see how you would, could think of it in those terms. It, it, because it's not necessarily the dead, like departed ones, it could be conjuring up something completely different. So, okay, like a golem or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So in the laboratory, we, we have not done that. It, it, it's partially, as I say in, in my book, that if you don't know what you're doing when you're trying to conjure up things, uh, d don't do it, right? It, psychologically, it's destabilizing. Uh, you might actually tap into something that is real and it'll scare your pants off. Uh, just don't do it. <laughs> So I don't give instructions about that in Darn. the book. Okay. What I say instead, <laughs> what I say instead is that uh, if you, it'll, a lot of the science on this is always looking at things in principle. Is it true in principle, as best as we can tell? And when you, the moment you take a phenomena that expresses itself in the in, in the real world, and you put it into the laboratory, you're going to get a much smaller effect size. It's going to be pretty weak because it's an artificial context. The experiment. We ask people to perform a miracle on demand in exactly the way that we want them to, and they have to do it now. So that, that's typically not the way that the, the, the messy paranormal real world works. It's usually much bigger than that, but also it's spontaneous. Well, we don't want to wait around in the lab forever for something to happen, so we want it to happen on our, our own schedule. And as a result, the effects are smaller. But we have much higher conf confidence that the effects that we're seeing are real because we're able to exclude all of the other explanations. So when it, c it comes to something like conjuring up spirits, about the best that we can do in the laboratory under, under lab conditions is through mediumship research. And so that we, we have done. And so we've looked at the neuroscience of mediumship and are mediums accurate and those kinds of questions. Now, um, I also... Uh, want to talk about uh, something that you mentioned in the book regarding the best evidence uh, for um, these things. And I believe it was called Six Sigma uh, yeah. as, as the, um, the top evidence. Can you explain that? And, and maybe... Wait, hold on. This isn't a business <laughs> podcast. Nobody's interested. In like, we're going to start talking about no, office no, no, buildings. No, it isn't. I'm just I, <laughs> no, I know. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Six Sigma is a, a thing, thing. Uh, for, yeah. for businesses, to, for people that have jobs, I guess they have to talk about. Yeah. But so, Dean, uh, let's hear. Yeah, I would definitely hear the best of it. Okay. So Six Sigma is often used in things like uh, process control and, and uh, quality control. And it, it's a statistical way of talking about extremely reliable effects. 
So if you buy a hard disk or you buy some kind of electronics, you want it to work and continue to work for a long, long time. Well, that means that the underlying circuits involved and components have to be extremely reliable. Six Sigma, from a statistical sense, is talking about one in a billion. So if you have something like a hard disk that gives you an error for one in a billion bits, that's actually not too good, right? Because we use gigabits all the time now. So the uh, Six Sigma would be like the, the lowest threshold that you'd want for a hard disk. You want something even much more reliable. Nevertheless, from from an experimental point of view, if you do an experiment or series of experiments and you end up with a result that is odds against chance of greater than a billion to one, one way of thinking of it is that in order to get a result as good as the one that you saw, you would have, and, and you're only dealing with chance, you would have to run the same experiment a billion times. Well, there hasn't been enough time in the universe to do that for many of these experiments because they take a long time to run. Think about the funding. <laughs> well, yeah, it's assuming funding <laughs> is infinite. Funding is yeah. infinite, timing and resources are infinite. And if you end up with hell a, of a, grant. a billion to one odds against chance, basically that says, okay, we're done. By comparison, a five sigma result is sufficient in physics to get you a Nobel Prize. Because a five sigma is, is uh, the odds against chance are high enough to say, okay, this looks like a real thing. So when you get up to Six Sigma, you're way beyond the idea of establishing something as real. So what is what is established? Well, telepathy is established up to Six Sigma in terms of repeatable effects. And clairvoyance, or if you wish to use the more modern term, remote viewing, it reaches that level. Uh, psychokinesis, at least in a micro sense, uh, micro psychokinesis on random number generators in particular, can you explain that real quick so people that might not know what psychokinesis is, number one, and number two, like what would they be manipulating? How could anybody not know what psychokinesis <laughs> is? I'm just... What you, what I, okay, so what I often hear Freaks. in the popular sense is the word telekinesis, right? It's, it's mind-matter interaction, moving objects with your mind. So moving objects with your mind, uh, as you see on YouTube, thousands of videos of people moving pinwheels and that sort of thing. That's not what we generally study in the laboratory, because those are relatively big effects. If you can see something with the naked eye, that's a big effect. What we're talking about instead are using electronic circuits and photons and electrons, really small things uh, that you can't see with your naked eye, but you can use statistics to get very high confidence that something is going on. So again, just like I said before, that if when you take a phenomenon in the real lab, in the real world. Somebody says they can levitate or do something big. It would be great if we could take that into the laboratory, except those large-scale effects never happen when you want them to happen. So these micro-psychokinetic effects are using really tiny objects uh, or systems even, bacteria sometimes, that uh, the, the notion is that it would be a lot easier to influence it in some way because it's such a smaller system but because it's so much smaller and because you don't have you can't directly see what's going on you have to do lots of repeated trials with repeated people same old thing use statistics to evaluate the result and you can do that and it has been done for many years now and that's how we end up with six sigma uh, confidence that psychokinesis in principle is real 
okay, so when I think about psychokinesis, I think about Empire Strikes Back, right? Luke is looking at his lightsaber when he's upside down in the Wampa Cave. Right. And then he just concentrates and the lightsaber comes flying to him. And I think we've all done that with a pencil at some point in our youth. We're like, come <laughs> on, I want you to roll, damn you, roll. Yeah. And you're sitting there, you're doing, you're using your mind bullets as much as you can. Okay. So pencil, that's a huge effect. The pinwheel you're talking about, it's a monster effect. But just the idea that you can use your mind and you said all the way up like a bacteria, people are able to affect, at least against chance, more than you would think. Even being able to affect a bacteria blows my mind that we could do that with our mind. Yeah, as well it should. So everything from photons to uh, the bacteria to radioactive decay rates uh, to the movement of small animals to uh, health in small animals. Uh, human physiology, human attention, a, vi- a wide range of targets have been used. And they pr- all pretty much show the same thing, that statistically you can cause these things to happen. I put ca- cause in quotes because we don't actually know the causal mechanism. There, we, there may not be a mechanism in the, in the ordinary sense, but nevertheless, there's definitely a correlation that goes on. I think I want this, and that thing tends to happen. That's, that's generally what we see in the laboratory. Then you've also measured uh, non or or other researchers as well has have measured um, non randomness in uh, random number generators, right? Right. So the random number generators are electronic circuits that are like coin flippers. So in the old days, you you might have actual dice that you would toss and have a target to make the dice all show a six, something like that. Well, the uh, the random number generators are the, the analog of that but now done in a way that you can create it digitally and record the data digitally. So it's much easier to do, and you don't have to worry about handling actual dice and all the rest of it. So there have been many, many hundreds of experiments using random number generators uh, as, as a more modern version of tossing dice or manipulating objects. So if we know that, that uh, magic is real, I, I know the people who are listening want to know, well, how can we practice it? I mean, how can we use this, you know, to make our life better or manifest the things that we want? Uh, In the book, you mentioned a state called gnosis. I'm wondering if you can elaborate that and other ways that we can use this knowledge in our lives. Now, is that gnosis with a G? Yes. Like gnosis? Like, okay. Like a a gnu. (laughs) Like a gnu. (laughs) Yeah. So it Uh, There are practices. People are already using magical methods all the time, whether they realize it or not. Uh, Prayer can be thought of as a magical practice. And in some religions, it is explicitly a magical practice. It's the the notion of using your intention to make something happen. So, I mean, there's many different reasons for doing prayer. Sometimes it's just a a thanks or a, a gratitude prayer, which isn't necessarily saying I want something, but a lot of prayer is all about, I want this to happen. So the, the gnosis state, it, in order to describe why gnosis is the state that is traditionally associated with magical practice, I need to say a little bit about why that would be the case. So the, one of the reasons I ended up writing a book on this is because if, if you, you go to the metaphysical bookstore and you pick out your grimoires, which are books of spells, and you know there, there's lots of practical stuff you can do. 
And it basically comes down to, well, just do this, this, and this, and then out, that outcome will happen. Sometimes you'll, you'll get a book which is a little bit more sophisticated and say that, yeah, it'll work, but you really need to do the ritual correctly. But it doesn't say why you need to do the ritual correctly or why you need to say exactly these words in this way, why? So that's one of the reasons why I decided to go much deeper into the Western esoteric tradition to find out what is the underlying reason for doing any of that stuff. So in my pre- Right. Why do we need a ritual at all? Right. Why do you need the ritual? So in my previous book called Supernormal was looking at the Eastern esoteric traditions, mainly through yoga. And this is now looking at the Western esoteric traditions. And basically, you end up with the same thing. There's, there's supernormal. So in the Eastern tradition, at least within the yogic tradition, you would want to achieve a state called samadhi. So samadhi is a classical mystical state. It's a, it's a state of awareness that you can get either through many years of meditative experience, or if you're really lucky and are talented, you can get it probably in 10 minutes. Some people do have talents in these domains. But it, it's the idea of getting into a mental state where distinctions begin to fall away. So it's sometimes called a non-dual state. So the mystic is describing reality as a single thing. It's all one thing. There aren't, there's no now and then, there's no me and you, there's, there are no distinctions anymore. That's the mystical condition. And that's where magic comes from. So yogi will use the term siddhi, which is a Sanskrit term to talk about this. And a, a, a Western esotericist will talk about magic and not samadhi, but gnosis, but they're the same state. And somebody at Burning Man will talk about acid. <laughs> yes, because if you take certain psychedelics, will push you momentarily into that state. And from that state, you get lots of reports of all kinds of interesting psychic things going on. Usually telepathy is the main one, but also precognition and a mm-hmm. few others. The, the difference is if you, if you use a, a psychedelic, you're forced into that state, whether you want to go there or not. And that's why it could lead to problems because it's, it's not an ordinary state by any means. But also people like drumming because drumming will do it. You, you can train your body and brain. Uh, dancing can do it. Uh, sex can do it. There are lots of ways that people use to get into these unusual or non-ordinary states of awareness, including dreaming. So I talk in the book about some practices that involve uh, rituals because the ritual also tends to pull you out of the ordinary state. So when you think about going to a, a large cathedral, as an example, they're, they're designed, the architecture is designed in such a way to pull you out of your ordinary state of awareness. The sound is different. There's beautiful windows with, with light coming through it. And it, it's all designed like a gigantic psychedelic trip, basically. And it's supposed to represent heaven on earth, right? Yeah. Like the, the people going to the cathedral and it's supposed to feel like a, like a different plane of existence is, is how they design that. Yeah. And you, you feel inspired and you have a certain sense of awe. And all of it is pulling you away from your ordinary state of awareness and in a, at least a little bit deeper into this state of gnosis. So the more you get into a ritual and you're following it, your analytical mind goes away. You're doing the dancing, you're doing the saying, chanting, whatever, and that pulls you away. And that's where you need to be in order to make these things work. So by going to a book, like I have a chapter in there on practice, what, what you would do for magical practice. 
I put it in there mainly because my edit- editor said, I have to put it in there. <laughs> because as, as you were saying, the people want to know, well, how do I use this? What do I do? Yeah. So, okay. Let's make this mm-hmm. happen. So It's a how-to book. It's a grimoire itself. No, <laughs> it, it really isn't. It, <laughs> it, it's how-to only in the sense that in order to understand why you'd want to do the, the ritual in the first place, it helps a lot, at least from my perspective, to know why. Like well, what the ritual itself doesn't mean anything. It's a way of getting you into a certain mental condition. That's that's my opinion. I know magicians who say, no, that's not the case, that you have to do exactly this procedure with this particular pentagram and this facing the east and blah, blah, blah. I consider that to be uh, mostly theater. It's useful theater, but it's mostly theater. There may also be some elements of uh, correlates that help the process. So, for example, are you if you're facing north versus not facing north? Well, now we know that humans are actually have have magnetite in your brain, and you're more you, you're different if you're facing north and you're not because you can sense the magnetic field. Maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe if you're not facing north, then you're mentally not able to get into the right state. So, these ancient practices that have rituals in them, some of them, which seem extraneous, maybe they were actually on this something. So I don't want to dismiss the ritual as totally meaningless, but I would rather say that I would rather take a ritual and start breaking it down into its pieces and see which ones seem to make sense, and let's test it, and which parts don't make sense. So my guess is that wearing uh, hooded black velvet robes don't, aren't, aren't necessary. It's fun. But it's not a necessary part. (laughs) (laughs) So so it sounds like your point is there's a lot of ways to get into this non-ordinary state uh, of experience. And in the book, you discuss the history of mesmerism. And I wondered, has the effect of hypnosis to induce or enhance psi been studied in the lab? Yeah, it it has. Uh, In fact, Mesmer himself uh, had had discovered, actually one of his students had discovered that uh, if you got the so-called somnambulist subjects, these are people who go into deep trance very easily. Uh, it's so deep that uh, these are the ones that you can uh, have them do things and they don't remember at all. Some of them could do clairvoyance to extremely accurate degree. They would, they would call it traveling clairvoyance back then, which is what today we would call remote viewing. But they were really, really good at it. So... That's, that's one inkling that uh, some people, small percentage, can go into these hypnotic states and basically be told, you, you're now super psychic. And sure enough, they are. It, the other place that uh, has looked at hypnosis in more detail are the Russians. So the Russians had, had done a lot of research on telepathy and hypnosis. One of the ways they did it is they would first find a somnambulist. Uh, they'd see, make sure that they were actually pretty good at these psychic tasks. And then they would remotely hypnotize them. So the, the experiment would be that the person is going about their everyday world. They were given a post-hypnotic suggestion that when they feel the hypnotist doing their thing, they would drop into a trance. Well, there are many experiments like that have been done, which is a little bit like the Manchurian candidate, only more freaky because this... That's exactly what yeah, I was thinking. Because now <laughs> you can have somebody going about their daily life and just basically fall into a trance. And it's because somebody at a distance had basically pre-programmed them that when they feel the telepathic whatever, that they would drop into it. So, Wow. That totally makes me think about voodoo dolls. 
You know, that, that, that whole idea that uh, it can happen, you got me thinking about the serpent and the rainbow, as always, no, already, <laughs> when you were talking about dancing into the gnosis state. And that's something they really illustrate well in that film, as, they, as um, if, you, if you guys want to have like some kind of visual representation of it, of, of someone dancing and, and going into that state of wild kind of suggestion and, and magic, but also that idea that... Uh, of you know of being programmed in a way that somebody can just think about it later and knock you out or you know whatever the case may be you know and if we think we're talking about the Russians doing this and weaponizing it and stuff like that think about think about the, what the advertisers are already trying to do sure. uh, you know yeah and um, I've been uh, studying the the work of Catherine Crow uh, for a project I'm working on and so you know I've been thinking about the connection between some nambulist and the the paranormal and hypnosis and the paranormal. Uh, so you're helping me to, you know, clarify your, your book really helped me to clarify, you know, why hypnosis and, and the paranormal are connected. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Is it just that hypnosis helps you to get to that gnosis state? Well, it's bypassing your analytical mind. And unfortunately, a lot of people are influenced by suggestion, but it's, it's only this, these rare people, there's maybe 2% of people who can get into these very, very deep trance states quickly. That, that, that's where you begin to see really strange things happening because now you're completely bypassing their conscious mind and in a sense talking not quite at the level of depth of, that I would call gnosis, but a lot closer to it than the, than the everyday state. Yeah. We interviewed Gary Lackman recently about his views on the Western esoteric tradition. And he recommends uh, the hypnagogic or uh, hypnopompic states for magical practice. Uh, how are these states related to gnosis? Well, again, they're, they're deeper than the ordinary state. Uh, they, they happen twice a day or twice a night when you're falling asleep and waking up. So you can more or less program yourself to, to remain a little bit more aware while those states are happening. So I almost, I very rarely remember a hypnopompic state, waking up one. But uh, if I want to, I can remember the, the going to sleep version, the hypnagogic state. Usually what I end up seeing is I'm just watching it like a movie because it's kind of interesting. But you could, in that state, prepare to use your intention to do things. And given that that's, that's much lower than, I mean, lower is a metaphor, but it's, it's deeper in terms of your consciousness uh, to, toward the level of gnosis, that, that whatever you're doing there in an, in an intentional way is more likely to occur. And by the way, what I just said is, is a testable hypothesis, right? So the scientist in me is immediately saying, ooh, we can try that in the laboratory. We, we could do experiments in an everyday waking state, but we can also do it in these hypnagogic states and prepare it in such a way and then know for sure whether that's actually happening. Well, that reminds me, I did that as a kid. I, I read a book, I had a book out of the library out of self-hypnosis and had a whole thing about, um, like you could record yourself saying something and then you would tell it and you'd play it as you were falling right. asleep. And so I was trying to get myself to stop biting my nails. And I was like, I don't know, 11 years old or 12 years old. And I had the home tape recorder and I taped myself saying like, <laughs> stop biting your nails. <laughs> and I'd play that in headphones or whatever as I would fall asleep. And 
it well it worked yeah. for me no it, it uh, nice. do, after after a week of doing i stopped yeah, biting my no, nail. It, it, it does work uh, the, the of course there's always a flip side to that that the unintended consequences is that now you start biting the cassette tape or you, know, you start <laughs> biting something else <laughs> i started That's biting right. other people's nails go. which did not which, make me popular right. at school which leads me to the question so even lauded psychics like ingo swan have an obscured view at times and end up remote viewing like, like say in his case, naked aliens romping on the dark side of the moon. Um, So to use magical terminology, how can we bind those obscuring aspects of our minds for clearer vision when practicing magic? Well, it's not clear that you can, right? So the, (laughs) that's a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. And that, that's why a small percentage of people who get involved in such things, including even just meditation, they become psychotic. Because you, you need to start from a condition where you're already psychologically well-grounded. You have friends. You can talk about this to other people. It's not completely secret because you can freak yourself out pretty quickly. And when you start dealing with anything outside of the very mundane, everyday world. So I, I, I try to put a, a number of cautions in my book that basically say, yeah, magic is real. It can do things. Most, for most people, it's going to be pretty weak, sort of like subtle effects. But don't dwell on it too much, even though it is fascinating. Don't dwell on it too much because it it, it destabilizes psychologically. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I wonder, too, I, I have a few questions from others. I, I reached out to some of our former guests and, uh, you know, some of our listenership as well. And uh, so Fred Fogarty of, of Hawaii Paracon, um, dot com says um, or asks how is magic different than wishful thinking or mere priming, priming being the psychological phenomena where having been exposed to a word or idea, it influences your experiences later? Right. Well, that's a good question. So a lot of what we would think of as uh, positive psychology, which, which can also be traced back into the esoteric traditions, a lot of that has standard psychological ways of thinking about why it works. And, and it does work. I mean, you can get a master's degree in positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania if you wanted to. So the the methods work. Uh, We know that uh, things like affirmations, when in the laboratory context, we know that it's not simply wishful thinking. It's not just a psychological effect and that we need to go into a laboratory context to be able to know that with any certainty. So that's, I mean, so that's the answer, right? Yeah, the the lab the lab marks the difference then. Yeah. And uh, Gary Lackman also wanted to know what your take on uh, synchronicity is. In many ways, I think of what we do in the laboratory as controlled synchronicities, right? We're creating meaningful coincidences in time, but under our control. That's what a, an experiment of is about psychic phenomena in the lab. We want you to to do have a, a synchronous. Uh, thoughts at the same time between two people in the laboratory. So that could look like a synchronicity if it was done outside of the laboratory. Both people would say, oh, I just thought of that thing. How, how funny that is. Well, it's a synchronicity. If it was in the laboratory under our control, it would be a data point. Because we're, but so it basically, it's, it's the same phenomenon, I think. It's just that one is controlled and the other one isn't. You know, what, what, get, what gets me here, uh, Dean, Something that you said earlier, uh, when you were talking about, um, you know, go, going on the theme of synchronicity and going on the theme of gnosis and going on the theme of these, you said when people try this real magic, um, it, the, the effects are probably weak. But 
when we talk about magic and you said like, well, if a human mind can uh, affect a bacteria or affect a random number past chance, what kind of small things can we affect that later on can blossom into something that you know you may not attribute it to magic, but you can certainly attribute it to a positive attitude. You can certainly attribute it to something. Are there are there certain things that people can do um, to start making these weak, but maybe in the in the future powerful changes in their life? That that's a very good question because the the fact that something is weak, even probabilistic, could eventually turn into something monstrous, in a, in a good sense or in a bad sense. So. If you, if you wanted to uh, have a much better job, for example, and you did a, a magical practice, and I'll, I'll talk about one or two in a bit, but you wanted to do that, you, you, you could end up with something like a step function where one day you have this job and the very next day you have a completely different job. That happens occasionally. Usually it's not that fast. So what happens is that you, you'll begin to start a cascading series of what looks like synchronicities probabilistic things, you meet the right person, you go to the right place, things start happening that will, that will lead you to the thing that you want. And it takes, it takes time for these events to, to compound. So one of the reasons why affirmations are so popular is because they do tend to work. And the one that I, I talk about, or the two that I talk about in, in my book, one's simply called writing magic. Writing magic is one of the oldest forms of magical practice. And it is literally that you write down on a piece of paper what it is that you want. Usually put in, in affirmation terms, you put it down as uh, in present tense. I, I have this thing. Not that I want to have it, but I have it. You make it as though it is now a real thing. Uh, you do, so you write it. The act of writing is a ritual. The act of writing focuses the mind and the attention and intention during the act of writing. And then... Uh, you you put that piece of paper somewhere so that it is not in the in the mundane world. It's right. it's more of a secret from with you and the universe. And you don't want to tell blab to all your friends that you now have this this affirmation that you've done because all it takes is one person to give you a funny look about it, and that will destroy your belief that it's going to work. And uh, among the factors that make these effects work, belief is probably the strongest. So the belief can modulate magic, as we, we talk about one of the experiments in the book, where uh, if people were involved in, a, in an experiment involving a blessing, so that was a, an intentional act, if they believed in it, they got a much bigger effect than if they didn't believe. So, And we see this again and again. There's lots of experiments looking at the role of belief in, in psychic performance, but you see the same thing said again and again in the magical traditions. This is one of the reasons why in cultures that strongly believe in magic, the magical effects, I think, work a lot better. And the, the, the traditional cases in voodoo, for example, if somebody does a voodoo uh, uh, act of a shaman or, or the voodoo pr uh, practitioner or priest is doing voodoo in a culture that is supporting that, it, it can be deadly. Whereas if they, the same person does the same thing, say, in secular United States, people can say, well, that's ridiculous. I don't believe in that, and it won't work. So the belief is, is something like a psychological filter that allows you to go along with uh, the intention or not. It is, seems to be a way to block it. 
Awesome. I, wait, I'll be, I'll be writing down stuff right after this podcast. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to tell you guys right. what it is. So, you write it, it so, so there's writing. Yeah, so write, write it down and then uh, look at it every so often, but don't dwell on it. Because the whole point, just like with rituals, you want to focus attention like crazy on the thing that you want, and then you have to release it. Because if you don't release it, it's going to stay at the level of analytical everyday awareness, and that's not where the action happens. So you want to have absolute total focus on the thing and then release it to allow it to settle down into the state of gnosis. Now, some people can go there mentally. They can go there and maintain awareness all the way down and do it consciously, but most people can't. So you do the ritual, and that helps the process along. And are there other practices you, you've mentioned writing um, and, you, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, too, uh, you know, you could write it before you go to bed. Right. And then you could play, you know, a recording of yourself reading something about it. So you get it in the uh, you get it in the uh, hypnagogic state um, and then that's it. That's the only time you do it. Right. So so that you release it for the waking period. Well, there, there are different recommendations. Some people say you write it on a special piece of paper with a special pen, and then you burn it. Others say you, you write it on a, with a piece of paper, uh, but the, you then hide the paper, and you don't look at it very much. Others say, yeah, you look at it once a day. So just like any practice, people are going to resonate with different, uh, different methods. So you'll have to practice yourself and see which one works the best. Others will do subliminal programming within the hypnagogic state or even the waking state that's pretty popular as well all of it is is pushing at the same direction that you have an intention with focus and then you you want to let it settle down so it becomes part of you at a deeper level that's what all of them are doing well what i like what you're talking about here and i think this is something that i know that i'm guilty of but you know in in the in the world of nothing shocking and nothing sacred, you know, you laugh at when you say like, "Oh, don't take the," you know, if if I say, "Gee, damn it," or whatever, my mother would be like, "Don't take the Lord's name in vain," or whatever. Like, I'm like, "Give me a break!" What's he gonna strike me down with lightning? But it's it's the idea of holding something, and you reminded me about this when you said like, put that piece of paper or use a special pen or a special piece of paper, or put it somewhere special. Um, is that? we can determine something right. sacred for ourselves. Whether it's a sacred time, I mean, it could be your favorite TV show, I don't know, and that's a sacred time, but you, you do your best not to break it or you really care. Or it's a sacred, I think about why I perform music, is it going to be, um, you give it your, your utmost, you give it your best and you hold that time you're on stage as something beautiful or more powerful, it's not mundane. And I, what I like what you're getting at here is that um, there exists our mundane state of existence, our day-to-day, -day, it's like, okay, I'm going to make the pancakes or whatever and then have that or what, versus a time that we hold special and a time that we hold important to us. And that can make some kind of difference in our gnosis states, in magic, in making our, you know, quote unquote dreams come true or anything like that. Um, and, and I think differentiate in, in this world of nothing sacred and nothing matters, we don't differentiate enough of that between this is something meaningful to us uh, and this is something that's just mundane. And so I think that's a, a really important distinction that you kind of brought up there. Yeah. It's also the reason why you don't blab about it to your friends. To trusted friends, perhaps you might, but something as, as minor as a raised eyebrow when you're talking about this, 
mm. we'll, we'll squash it. So in, in the historical sense, the sorcerers always did their work in, in secrecy. It was partially because oftentimes it, it, you'd be killed if people knew that you were using it. Yeah, <laughs> that was part of it. Death. But the other part, I think, is that the, it, we're dealing with a, a subtle level of mind and belief that, that need to be in just the right place and the right, the right way. And it's fairly easy to, to make it go away, to squish it. So the, the other thing I wanted to mention, though, is that the, the, re, the secret power of the universe, which is part of the subtitle, of the book is consciousness. That's the secret power. Because all of the esoteric traditions basically say one thing. They say that uh, the, the, the underlying nature of reality is about consciousness. It's fundamental. And this, of course, is the reason why it's not very popular in science, because science says consciousness is not fundamental. In fact, it's sort of a side effect that doesn't have any meaning at all. Yeah, an upbeat phenomenon. So you have the scientific worldview, which is demonstrably extremely powerful. It doesn't cover everything. You have the esoteric worldview, which is saying that consciousness is fundamental. A philosopher would say this is idealism. It's the difference between materialism and idealism. Well, the magical worldview requires that idealism is true, as do psychic phenomena also require that, that idealism is true. I have some colleagues who will argue with that and say, no, with, with the materialistic models, we can still account for psychic phenomena. I'm not convinced of that. I think an idealist view is probably better. The big challenge, though, then, is that from a scientific perspective, to adopt idealism as a new worldview, you have to be very careful not to throw away everything else we know about science. Because then, well, then what? Then we don't know what to do anymore about anything. So I give a solution in the book that I think is, is a viable way to get out of this problem, where you can still adopt consciousness as fundamental, which suddenly now magic and psychic phenomena and mysticism and a whole range of things considered paranormal are perfectly normal within this more expansive worldview. So the, so the gnosis part is happening because if consciousness is fundamental, then what you consider to be yourself, your, con your, your self-awareness, your consciousness, that you usually call me, that is the same thing as this universal consciousness from which the universe arises. That means you do have a piece in you which is the same thing as the source of everything. This is what virtually every religion says. It's what all of the magical traditions say as well. And now you can, you can see a little bit more carefully why if you have an intention, you're performing a creative act in your head, I want this thing to happen. That is a very, very small scale version of whatever it was that caused the entire universe to not only come about, but to be sustained. That's, this is what the esoteric traditions are saying. It also then, it, it makes sense for the other kinds of, uh, of magical practices like divination, because now the consciousness in you is not, is not the same as the physical world. It's before space and time. So you have a capacity in your awareness to see through space and time. It's actually before space and time. So I, I work through all of this in course, great detail in the book to, to talk about it. But the reason why I did that is because if we're just interested in magical practice, if you grow up as a, in a secular Western education, a little piece of you is thinking now, well, I can do this practice and maybe it's even going to work, but how could it work? 
So this is answering the how question in a way that is not doing any violence to what we know about the scientific worldview. And and just real quick, um, to explain that idea, to where maybe people who uh, will then can read your book and, and, and learn more about it, just explain real quick what you mean by consciousness is fundamental. Because I think that is the center of the entire thesis you kind of just laid out. But for people who may not just get that that concept, just lay that concept out real quick. So consciousness is awareness. And awareness, from a scientific perspective, is a gigantic mystery. Of the, the list of something like the, the hundred outstanding questions in science, always near the top two or three uh, is consciousness. It's often it's described in, in the terms of how, what is the biological basis of consciousness? We're talking about your inner experience. Because the, and we're, we're so used to thinking of the brain like you are your brain. But how is the brain as a physical object? Three pounds of tissue that's, that's electrochemical somewhere inside your skull. How is that producing this sense of being aware? What is, what is awareness? Is it simply a mechanical thing that happens when you put enough circuits together? It's possible, I guess. But more and more scientists and neuroscientists and physicists are beginning to think that there's something peculiar about consciousness because it is not physical. When you taste an orange, you have an experience of that. Some of it is related to the signals that are being carried by your tongue to your brain and all that. We can sort of look at the, the physical aspects of it. But that doesn't explain why you would have an experience. So it, the nature of internal experience is a, is a big mystery and has not been solved, and we are nowhere near solving it. And this is leading more and more people to the idea that maybe it's simply a given. Like it's, it's simply part, it's, awareness is wrapped into the fabric of reality in some way. So this... Uh, it, it's for people. I actually need to, to think back around 30 years ago, and I was I was going to Princeton University, and I was going to be in charge of this program studying consciousness. So I remember telling one of my uncles uh, this. I said, "Oh, I'm going to I'm going to go to Princeton and study consciousness." And he said, "Well, what is that? What do What do you mean you're going to study consciousness?" And I said, "Well, well, how how would we account for your your experience for just like the the fact that you're aware of anything?" He had never thought of that before, and most people never think of how completely remarkable it is that we have experience because it's it's so much it's like it's the only thing that we can ever know the the thing that allows you to know anything is your experience and then, and yet at the same time it is both the one thing that everybody knows for sure and the one thing we absolutely have no explanation for at all so from the esoteric traditions are saying that this one thing the only thing that you will ever know for sure, anyway, uh, is a fundamental nature of reality. That's part of it. You can't extract it somehow and say, no, there's a really a physical world that's all operating by itself without consciousness. We wouldn't know that there was any physical world unless we had consciousness. So you can't extract it. If it is as important as the, the esoteric people have said, then it begins to explain it provides a way of, of understanding why magic would, would exist at all and why psychic phenomena exist and so on. It provides a, an explanatory context for all of these, maybe not all, a lot of what's considered to be paranormal phenomena. Yeah. 
So I don't know if that answered the question any better, but. Yeah, and you've been very generous with your time, uh, Dean, but uh, we should probably wrap up, although I have a million questions that people wanted to ask you. Uh, but I, I wondered, you know, what we thought about what level of data, what level of data do you think uh, is needed to convince the general scientific field that psi is a real thing? A case can be made that no level of data would ever be available to, to yeah, it's, it's none. The answer is none. <laughs> right. Or, or infinite, somewhere between them. Uh, you look at the first presidential address to the Society for Psychical Research back in 1882. The president said at that time, and this was only five or six years after they started looking into telepathy, they said at that time that the, the evidence available for telepathy was so overwhelming that it was only a matter of time before the mainstream would accept it. We're talking about 140 years ago. No. And, and so the moment you see what's happening there, you realize that the reason why it's not accepted is because it does not fit within the scientific worldview. That's why. Because if you, your head is in that space, you cannot even think of a way that it would work. And not surprisingly, when people can't think of a way, they say, well, no, that evidence has to be due only to flaws or fraud. That's the only possible explanation because they can't think of anything else. That's why what I'm, I'm promoting then is the idea of let's re-examine what we mean by a scientific worldview, or if you wish, you can use the word paradigm, and say, well, the paradigms have changed constantly in science, and they've always become more and more comprehensive. So how can we make the current worldview more comprehensive in such a way that now you can think of a way that it would work? So I think what's going to what'll be necessary, and I'm projecting that this is going to happen, that the scientific worldview will become more comprehensive. And what we currently see is the worldview, the materialistic worldview will be seen as a special case. It works for certain kinds of things. It just doesn't work for everything. We expand it a little bit. Oh, now new things are possible. That's what's going to happen. Awesome. Uh, well, I got to say, thank you very much for your, your time today, Dean. And for people that want to learn more about this, I think this is, this, is a, this is a good primer to get you started on the 201, the advanced class, which is uh, the brand new book, Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe, which you're going to find a link to that directly from our show notes, othersidepodcast.com slash 194. You can uh, click on there and then grab your copy of that book. We'll also have a link to Dean's website so you can learn more about him, see his other books, read his articles, and then maybe check him out when uh, he's coming to do a speech or something like that near you. So thank you very much for your thank time. Thank you so much. This is really a special treat for us. You're welcome. Thanks again to Dean Radin for joining us today. It really was awesome to, to talk to him. And thank you to Allison for setting it up and then joining us in the conversation and doing research. Yes, thanks. She was super prepared today for the interview, and that was fun. You know, one of the things I liked best about our conversation with him was the idea of the, you know, the sacred, that there is you know, something that we can keep more important than other things and, and how important that might be. Like, Wendy, is there anything particularly sacred in your life? Like, if somebody makes fun of it or something like that, you're like, hey, don't make, you can't make fun of that. Is there anything you, that you can think of anything right now? No, nothing is sacred to me. Okay. Well, no, I mean, that's not what I mean. But there's just, there's, I, I like that idea that that helps in belief. 
mm-hmm. that you know there are certain things you know when he talks about you know you write on the piece of paper and you don't share it with anybody because even a little bit of ridicule from somebody else can ruin it i see you know so, so do, do you have like a daily after you don't you don't have to share your but do you have like a daily affirmation you say or anything like that that you, you know, i that, might that is yours <laughs> and well yeah you know there's little things that i do that i think this is mine and I don't share with other people because I'm, you know, I save it. I try to keep it that that sense of of sanctity that other people used to have for church. Sure, or, okay. you know, my mother, my mother will not miss church ever. You know, she feels bad when she misses a Sunday or you know a mass. Meanwhile, I don't care about that particular kind of thing. So we all have those certain things, and and that can help with manifesting and creating things right. in your life. And it's those small things, I think, of that um, makes Dean's ideas in Real Magic powerful. The fact that, okay, we can't just snap our fingers and say abracadabra and something happened. Like, you know, a car shows up. It, it takes more. It takes belief. It takes the small thoughts we can change. You know, kind of like the, the butterfly flapping his wings and you get a tornado in Kansas or something. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, I was doing some reading, and there's a Raul Dahl quote. Ooh, my favorite. That I thought was quite appropriate in his, in his book, The Twits. <laughs> and I haven't read it for a long time. But Yeah. Um, if a person has ugly thoughts, it begins to show on the face. And when that person has ugly thoughts every day, every week, every year, the face gets uglier and uglier until you can hardly bear to look at it. A person who has good thoughts cannot ever be ugly. You can have a walky nose and a crooked mouth and a double chin and stick out teeth. But if you have good thoughts, it will shine out of your face like sunbeams and you will always look lovely. Aww. And uh, I just, I don't know, I thought that was cute. I'm surprised you didn't read it in a British accent. <laughs> no, I, just, I didn't want to ruin See, I was keeping it sacred. I didn't want to ruin it by making nice. fun of it. No, that was a very sweet quote. And Roald Dahl is one of my favorite authors ever. So. Right. Extra special. Part of the idea of this week's song is that uh, related to to Dean's idea of real magic is that uh, when you say just words or whatever, it it doesn't mean something like when you do it daily and have the power of belief behind it. So we all have a good laugh when we think about Stuart Smalley, you know, (laughs) and his daily affirmation of I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Uh, so that, but that makes it silly. Like he's making fun of the affirmations, and, and that—that's the whole idea. That's when Dean says an arched eyebrow can ruin the whole thing for you. Yeah, see what you just did that to me. You I guys did. Couldn't <laughs> see it when they just ruined it for me. Anyway, and you had to tell the audience they wouldn't know. <laughs> but just going through the motions doesn't cut it. Like he was saying that you know the the, the ritual can have yeah. an effect, but huh. the, you know the ritual isn't the. It's it's supposed to put you in the state. That you're highly suggestible or that you can create and and things like that. And that's the idea behind this week's song is that just going through the motions doesn't cut it. You need more than just magic words. It's magic. Bubble, toil and trouble, open sesame in the lab. At- 
your synchronicity And the hocus pocus where you focus is no guarantee It takes more than magic words to cast a spell on me It's magic It takes more than magic words Oh, you need to believe It's magic for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. You know what I find magic, Mike? What do you find magic, Wendy? I find the support of our Patreons to be a truly magical thing. That is real magic. That's the secret power of the universe is our Patreon community. Yes, and a big magical thank you to (laughs) (laughs) Ned, Dr. Ned. Thanks, Doc. Who pledges us at a level that he gets this shout out every single episode and we truly truly appreciate your support ned and all of our patreon members and everyone for listening that's right thank you once again let's all hang out together on may 9th yes and if you guys are not part of the community yet uh you can do things you can you can help us do awesome things at the conversations we have with um great paranormal minds all you know on a weekly basis and the music we create and the blog posts and videos and all that stuff you guys can do that at othersidepodcast.com slash donate so thank you to the community we have and i'm thinking right now thinking positive thoughts about the community we will have in the future yes I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Uh, 